thought about that old song about go tell it on the mountain. He's up there on the top of that rock with his head's out like this, this, this praising God. Good to see all of you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. As we continue with this series about doctrine, false teaching, the pastoral epistles, this morning we'll tackle divine grace. Now, I hope you know that not one of these messages that I do is all comprehensive. There's no way I can cover everything is about God's grace in about 25 or 30 minutes. If, it, if I could do that, it wouldn't be amazing grace anymore. I hope you understand that. But a way of introduction, how many of you have heard of the game or played the game called Telephone? And that's when you line up a group of people and you start with the first person, you tell them something. And they are to turn to the next person and repeat exactly what you said. And it goes around the line until at the end you see if what you told that first person is now accurately repeated back with that last person. What usually happens? It doesn't end that way, does it? Because things are added to it. Some things, some things are distracted away from it. Are taken away. So what was originally communicated sometimes doesn't come out at the end. That reminds me of verse 14 of our text where it says, guard the treasure. Now, literally, that word in the Greek means good deposit. So guard that treasure or that good deposit that's been entrusted to you. So bear with me. It's a bit like playing telephone. We are to be truthful and guard that message that we have been entrusted with, the message of the gospel, and accurately tell that to the next person down the line. As a pastor, I am to accurately preach the word of God, to pass on the message accurately and with clarity to the next generation and to the listeners. However, what happens sometimes, here we are in the year 2019, Soon will be the year 2020, if you, if you can believe that or not. And as we have seen over the history of man, sometimes the gospel message, although simple but yet so profound, over the years sometimes gets twisted and turned just a little bit with things are added to it or taken away from it. So we are to be those people that guard that message. Because let me tell you something. The way we handle the message, the way we communicate the message, is just as important as the message itself. Alright? Did you catch what I just said? The content of the message, the gospel message, is important. But just as important is the way we talk about it, the way we communicate it. If we expect people to hear us, we have to... Talk accurately and with clarity. We need to guard against false teaching. And Paul constantly balances exhortation about white doctrine with reminders that we are capable of advancing the gospel only by the grace of God. And that forms the basis of much of his correction in the pastoral epistles. Reminding believers they cannot earn their salvation. And that loyalty to the truth of the gospel requires rebuking, rebuking or correcting. That means rebuking or correcting any additions or subtractions away from the gospel. That is necessary. In this context, as we look at this, this letter written to Timothy, we will see that right off the bat, he encourages Timothy to join him in suffering. 
Now, how would you feel about if you haven't never met me before, you didn't know anything about the gospel, and the first thing I tell you is, won't you join me in suffering? Would you sign up for that? Now, we shouldn't walk around with frowny faces all the time, but there is an aspect of suffering that you cannot get away from when we faithfully follow Christ. Because suffering does happen. That's the reality. And he tells them the truth of the gospel will promote a readiness to endure hardship. How can we get through those times when a loved one flies away home or a death in our family? We can get through it because we know the truth of the gospel that as painful as it is and it hurts us, we know that's not a forever goodbye. It's just temporary. We know the truth of the gospel. We will see that person again. And in that day, there will be no more suffering and no more pain, no more disease, and no more goodbyes. So the truth of the gospel helps us endure the hardship. It also refers to his own life that provides an example for young Timothy. In verse 11, he mentions his divine appointment to ministry. And he knows that Timothy will sense his own appointment to it. And what's interesting to see in this passage is he talks about him being appointed a, a herald or a preacher, a teacher, and an apostle. It reminds us that Paul sees his imprisonment as not just some random accident, that God has orchestrated that. That... God has either put him or allowed him to be in prison. In verse 12, we see Paul's own courageous confrontation to suffering. And it's to reinsure and to boost Timothy that when that time comes, he'll be willing to endure hardship. So let's look at the text today. Let's read it together. Starting in verse 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus for all eternity, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life, immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of the sound words which you've heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Now, that's not implying that Timothy is ashamed of either the Lord or Paul yet. If you look at the tense form of the Greek verb there, that at the present time, Timothy wasn't ashamed of anything. But Paul knew how easily that could creep in. He he recognized the possibility that that shame could come in. Perhaps Timothy may have been embarrassed that some mocker saw Jesus as no more than a dead Jew. 
Maybe he wanted a more powerful vindication before people heard the Christian message. He wanted people to see that before he proclaimed the gospel. Perhaps he may have been embarrassed that the leader he was following was Paul, who was a leader. Now, it's interesting, you look back in the text, Paul viewed himself as the Lord's prisoner. But Timothy may have not been proud to serve in the company of an inmate. And it's interesting, when you look at that letter, Paul doesn't consider himself a victim of the Roman state, does he? How does he refer to himself? As a prisoner of Jesus. That attitude is transforming in its faith and commitment of Paul. If you notice a lot of his letters, when he opens up, he says, I'm a slave to Christ. How are you saying I'm a prisoner of Christ? Look what he says about Christ, who has saved us, called us according to his own purpose and grace. I am so glad that doesn't say according to my good works, because I'd be out of the picture. But according to his purpose and his grace. Now, there's a few key doctrines found in this verse. The calling of believers is to live holy lives, the sufficiency of grace and the eternal preexistence and divinity of Christ. But let's look at the first one, the calling of believers to live holy lives rather than living in sin and thus abusing the grace of God. Now, that word holiness or the adjective holy appears more than 900 times throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, it means to cut or to separate from what is unclean and Go to what is clean. So separate all that stuff, all that unclean stuff out of your life. In the New Testament, it stresses upon the reality of practical holiness in daily life. We are to go after personal holiness. And as a church, we are to strive for holiness as a church. Now, it's interesting. When you look at the New Testament, when you see the word saints, do you know what that actually means in the Greek? Holy one. And if you're a believer in Christ, you are a saint. You are a holy one. And that's not because anything you could do or have done. It's based on the work of Christ on the cross. See, salvation is not, it's a, it's a process, if you will. In other words, at the time of salvation, when you gave your life to Christ, And the blood of Christ covers your sin. Now you are justified in the eyes of the Father. He doesn't look at you in your sin. He sees the blood of Christ covering that sin. So now you're you're justified in right relationship with the Creator. Now comes the process of sanctification. We are to go after holiness. We are to become more Christ-like every day. That's the process of sanctification that never stops. Not until the day we get called home, he comes again. It's always a process of learning and growing. You never get to the place where you know it all. And then it's glorification. That day when he comes back, a week go to be with him in heaven, we are finally in that final state of glorification. So we talk about people being saved. I understand what you mean by that. We should say they are now justified. And now begins the process of sanctification. I'm only going to harp on this one more time. When someone comes down, they accept Christ, and we we clap. We should clap, by the way. I'm chasing this rabbit. Just bear with me. We look back in the Old Testament, and then we said, man, how many of you ever thought that if you had been there, you've been a slave all your life in Egypt, and you leave Egypt, not at the hand of the Egyptians are giving you things, telling you get out. 
And then you, you get to the Red Sea and you see Pharaoh's armies coming and the pillar of fire comes down. And then God separates the Red Sea and you walk on dry ground across. And then the Egyptians fly after you and the sea closes up. And have you ever thought, man, if I saw that go down, I would never have a problem with believing God ever again. You ever thought that? If I'd been there to see America like that, boy, I would believe this like that. But you know what? This is no way in Scripture. <laughs> I think it's from a bunch of Baptists in their crew because just a while longer after that, they all get together. Who wants to go back to Egypt? All say, aye, aye, and they won't go back to Egypt. Even in spite of everything God has done for them, they, they want to go back. But you know the greatest miracle we can see today is when someone becomes the enemy of God now becomes part of the family of God. When someone was over here in darkness, now they come into marvels, they become a child of God. They're in the family. That's the most wonderful miracle we can see. So we talk about people coming in that justification, but dearly beloved, that's just the beginning. Now we are to help them and disciple them. Sanctification. Growing more like Christ every day. See, God has called believers to a new quality of life. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, the goal of the call is eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 1, 9, the goal of the call is fellowship with Christ. Believers are called out of the world to begin a new experience, a new experience of commitment and living fellowship with God and with other believers. Ladies and gentlemen, dearly beloved, if you try to do this Christian walk by yourself, you will fail. You need to do it in a sense of community. Well, brothers and sisters, alongside of you to help you, to encourage you, and hold each other accountable. Because we're, we're concerned about each other's relationship with Christ. This, this call of holiness, I think we've lost that. We have lost the sense that we need to be different. We don't love the way the world does. We love the way God loves us. And that's difficult. It's easy to love people who love you, right? Even sometimes their own family, there's people difficult to love. But what did Jesus tell us? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And the next two we see here, key doctrine is the sufficiency of grace and the eternal pre-existence of the divinity of Christ. Look what the divine grace of Christ became available when from all eternity. Some will say from creation. But the idea is that this has been here. It's not some afterthought that God had. And Christ is the mediator through whom divine grace comes to us. First Timothy chapter two, verses five and six. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, as your pastor, I have an important part to play. But you don't come and confess your sins to me and ask for forgiveness. You go directly through God, through his son, to do that. You realize you have direct access to God anytime you want. You can go in and talk to him. And he will hear you. How many of you would like to get an audience with the president? 
Would you like to go to the White House? I don't care who's in office, just to go. What would it take to get just two minutes to sit down and talk to the president, be it Obama, be it Trump, whoever, just to have two minutes in the Oval Office to hear the president of the United States listen to what you have to say? And not just to kind of blow. I mean, he's looking at you and you can tell he's not just hearing you, but he's truly listening. Dearly beloved, you have access to one who's much far greater than the president of the United States. You have audience with the one who allowed that man to get that office to begin with. And that's the God of all creation, God of heaven and earth. And he invites us in. He wants us to come in. He, he longs for it. He, he, does, he wants that so much that he's willing to sacrifice his own son. And the availability of that grace through Christ would brace any wavering and resolve that Timothy might have. It's important to remember that God's saving grace and his saving purposes have been in work before time began. See, grace did not just become something after the cross. It was always there before the foundation of the world. God had this all planned out. Which begs the question, doesn't it? God knew he was going to create the world. He knew man's going to rebel against him. He knew he was going to send his son. I asked the question in my own little limited mind. Then why even create the world to begin with? But can I just jump ahead for a second? After all the seminary education I've been to, all the study and prayer I've done, I've come to two undeniable truths. Number one, there's a God. Number two, I'm not him. There's freedom in that. Look what he says, this grace revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death which is the next key doctrine, the power of Christ's work on the cross to provide eternal salvation. Jesus has destroyed death. Now, we still have physical death that we go through, but we no longer have to fear it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who fear death and were subject to slavery all their lives. And Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus has conquered the grave. And in that place where the world looks at final defeat, For us as believers, it's just the beginning of all eternity. He says he brought life and mortality to light through the gospel. Biblical scholar John Locke says this, quote, There was a hope of immortality in the world before, before, but the resurrection has converted into a certainty and has shown from beyond the grave the continuity of life there with life here. See, that with all the key doctrines that we find in verses 9 and 10, they are significant in themselves. But the broader message is clear. The gospel is all about divine grace. And anything that distorts from that truth denies the gospel itself. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. 
You see what Paul did here? I'm in prison. Now he's telling Timothy, I was divinely appointed for this. So if he's divinely appointed and enduring imprisonment because of that divine appointment, he was in prison for what he was preaching, then Timothy would have no reason to be ashamed of him. God had put him there or allowed him in that present circumstance. Perhaps he's reminding Timothy he could have such an appointment. John 15, verse 20, Jesus speaking. Remember the word that I've said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. See, he was in prison for what he's preaching. He's telling Timothy, I was appointed for that task. I'm here in prison because of faithfully proclaiming. He says, a preacher and that's also some translations, a herald. Why is that? Because that's what that word Caruso means. It means to proclaim publicly, out loud, for everybody to see and everybody to hear the message of the gospel. It's not necessarily a person. It's really what we're supposed to do. Even believers, as a believer, you are to publicly proclaim the gospel message through word and through deeds. Stresses the boldness and openness of Paul's evangelistic work. He had public audience before kings and magistrates and this common people. Think of the places Paul went and proclaimed the gospel boldly and openly. He was not ashamed of it. He says also an apostle reminding us of his commission and the authoritative nature of his proclamation. See, the authority in the gospel does not reside with Tim, does not reside with Forest Brook Baptist Church. It is the king who gives authority to the message. If you go back in time, in medieval times, it would have a town herald or a squire that would come out and he would read what the king declared. Right here, you, here says the king. And he would say what the orders were. That's what we're doing. We're proclaiming the message of the king. So the authority is from him, not me. And what does God tell us about his word? It will not go out without accomplishing what he wants it to do. In fact, there's power in the gospel itself. Don't have to add anything to it. There's power in the word of God. It's living, it's active, sharpening the two-edged sword, piercing into the joints and marrows of man. It's power in that. He says, I'm also a teacher, and that's a responsibility to explain the faith with clarity to all believers. He goes on to say, for this reason, I also suffer these things. But listen, what he's, look at what he says. But I am not ashamed. Being a preacher will entail suffering. And I can attest to that. If you're out there witnessing to people about your faith in Christ, telling people about the gospel, you're going to entail some, some suffering is going to come your way. Which flies in the face of a lot of popular preaching today that, that health and wealth will, that health and wealth gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said they're going to persecute you. There's going to be suffering in this whole text. If you can see, if you step back and think about it, what Paul is wrestling with is the reality of the overwhelming power and grace of God with the tension of the suffering in this life. That's what's going on here. And you'll find out that's how we should look at teaching. Does the teaching, does it talk about the grace of God and how powerful it is, how big it is, but does it also recognize the reality of suffering in this life? 
Just because you're a born-again Christian doesn't mean you're not going to suffer in this life. It's going to happen. Sometimes it happens just by being a Christian. Although we haven't suffered in this currency near to the point that some of our brothers and sisters around the world. Turn to you this way. You can go out and you talk to people about the beginning and God and heaven or hell, but the minute you mention Christ and you start talking about the gospel, that's where the tree starts to branch off. Either people will keep listening or they'll shut you down. And people look at this passage and think that all that suffering will come in a form of religious persecution, something similar to what Paul endured. However, as I've already pointed out, living a godly life may result in many forms of suffering and persecution. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in a time of our country that people only will call you names or sometimes will take you to court because you offended them by standing for what is right and what is moral. I learn something every time I prepare a message, but this is something I'll learn about World War II. There's a picture here of Hans and Sophie Scholl. That's their picture they got taken when they were at the concentration camp. And no, they weren't Jews. They were Germans. She was 21. He was 22. You know what they did? They, they were executed in 1943. Specifically, February the 22nd of 1943. You know what they did? There were Germans living during the time of Hitler and the Nazis. They formed a group of students called the White Rose. And they printed pamphlets talking about we must stand against the evil of the Nazi regime. These two young people knew what was at stake, but yet they stood up for what is right. And they were killed for it. I never heard this story before. They've made a movie of this story. I'd never heard it before. I didn't write it down. I wish I did. I found this quote by Sophie that basically says, you have to stand up for what is right. We we, we just can't sit here and do nothing. It's wrong. Now think about our current situation in our own country. What's happening? Where's the church's voice in all this? And let me tell you, when you stand up for what is right, you'll be mocked, you'll be called names, and sometimes you'll be shunned by people. And yes, the day may be coming when you're arrested and taken to jail. But we have to be willing to stand up for what is right. And here it's happening because he's proclaiming the gospel and it's making the Jewish people mad that put him in prison. But our suffering may just come. We're witnessing about Christ and the gospel message, standing up for what is right. Believing the gospel will cause you suffering on earth, but it's never in vain. And we just sang that hymn. Look what it says next. I know whom, I don't want to sing this song every time I read this. I know whom I believe and I'm convinced that he is able to guard. Having believed, that's the perfect tense in the Greek. It's emphasized that Paul has permanently put his trust and confidence in God. Not only now, in this, in this instance, in prison, he's always trusted God. 
and always will. Isn't it something how a lot of times we turn to God in times of stress and, and, and suffering, but then everything gets so fine, we, we kind of forget about God. But what Paul's talking about, I trust him completely in all areas of my life. He's been trusting him all along. He's convinced that God's divine power can save him. He is convinced that he has placed his faith in a living person that will never disappoint him. He's convinced of that. You know what I'm thinking right now? What's wrong with me? Why can't I have faith like that? Totally convinced that Jesus will take care of me in this life and the next. No matter what happens, I'm in his hands. That frees you up, doesn't it? It really does. No matter what happens, nothing can set me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It's freeing in that. And so oftentimes, I admit to you that my attention is drawn different places, and there's a fear here and a fear there. And so many times I've driven by fear more than I'm driven by my faith in Christ. And if you do some self-analysis, I would say some of you in here could say the same thing. Fear of rejection. Fear of persecution. Fear of losing material possessions. Look what he says. I, I, I do this because what I've entrusted or committed to him. Now, that could refer to his work or to his ministry, the people he's led in Christ. But I think Paul is actually referring to his very life itself. I'm entrusted that he's going to guard me and take care of me in this life and the next. I'm convinced of that. He will guard it until that day. That's the duration of time that guard that God's going to guard that deposit until the return of Christ. And we can trust that God can keep a life or ministry committed to him in a position of complete safety. Because here's what we know. God always keeps his promises. Always. And if you have a hard time believing that this morning because of circumstances in your life, let me remind you, when you go back and read the Old Testament, you read some of those stories, we go, well, why didn't they get it? Why didn't they see that? Same reason we don't see it. We don't really take God of his word sometimes. That God always keeps his promises. Peter gets a bad rap sometimes. You know, you know I can identify with Peter. Peter was quick to, to talk and, and, and do things, sometimes without thinking about it. But Peter, I look at Peter, he was, here's a guy, you don't think much of this, but those guys left everything and followed, I mean, they left every, everything they knew, they all left that and followed Christ. And we just read it, do we really stop and think about that? He just left. He follows Christ. And he has his own mind what the Messiah is going to do. And he has that, that last supper they have, the, the uh, Passover. And he says, I'll follow you to death. And Jesus says, no, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me three times. So I'm sure that upset Peter. But then he does it. And he reminded that when he makes contact with Christ. I often imagine how it would feel. Everything that Peter knew, theologically, 
culturally, everything was completely turned upside down in that moment. And goes back to fishing. You know the rest of the story. Peter, do you love me? But God always keeps his promises. Has he promised to walk with you? So here's the thing I've learned. Sometimes here's God, and I'm walking beside God, and then I decide to take my eyes off everything, and now I'm over here. God, where'd you go? God said, so I've been right here the time, time. You're the one who walked away from me. Or to use a, even a better analogy than that, you know, we wear seatbelts now. Remember the old cars that had doors about this thick, like built like a tank? My mom and dad had 75 vehicle savers. Thing was like a tank. We didn't wear seatbelts. You know what the seatbelt was? Dad's arm doing this. It's like that's going to stop me from going through the windshield. But anyway, bear with me. As I'm walking to the edge, and I, I don't see it, that's going to lead. It, it may be a small step to me, but reality is going to be a slippery slope that I'm going to go down. And before I realize what happened, I'm going to be in a world of hurt. You know what the Holy Spirit does? Tim, don't do that. Stay away. You know what I do sometimes? I know better and push that arm away and walk. Without realizing that he has the best intent walking with me. He tells them to retain the standard of the sound work which you've heard from me. That word retain or some translations render it pattern is the same word as example in 1 Timothy 1.16. See, he's not living, Timothy, a formula for understanding grace and suffering but setting boundaries and examples to follow. And that tension, once again, the overwhelming grace of God that he gives us and the suffering that he allows us to endure. And so each teaching that we hear, we must ask ourselves, is this person recognizing and prioritizing the grace of God? And is he acknowledging the reality of suffering? You ever have one of those days that are not going very well? And you know people like this, how you doing? I'm this great, I'm blessed. And no matter what's going on, they have that upbeat. And you sometimes, well, don't you guys ever get down or have suffering? And I'm not saying we need to wallow in our suffering. We need to at least acknowledge that it does happen. He talks about doing that in faith and love, which are Christ Jesus. This is how we maintain the correct doctrine is just as important as this content. Faith is to be focused on Christ Jesus, and the love that flows from that relationship provides sensible, compassionate direction in teaching and directing other people. Guard that through the Holy Spirit, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. We have been, how many believers we have in the house? Say amen. I'm glad that that. You have been entrusted with the gospel. You. Each one of you. We must not let heresy erode the truth of the gospel. We must maintain it. And that task of preserving the truth of the gospel is so demanding, it cannot happen by human strength alone. We have to rely on the empowerment and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that lives in all believers, that provides that strength, who enables us to engage in ministry. So now we're going right back to the grace of God. See, as the grace of God saves you, not based on works, the only way we advance the gospel is that same grace of God. Because when he's directing you somewhere or some person, he's already working on that on the other side. You ever gone to talk to somebody and they say, well, you know, I was just thinking about that. Or I was just, 
think about doing this because God is already there working in that situation. We're dependent upon the Holy Spirit for the strength and the wisdom and discernment. So in conclusion, let me ask you this. Have you put your faith in Christ? Do you have complete confidence in him? Are you able to say this morning, for I know whom I believe and I'm convinced or I'm persuaded that he is able to guard what I've entrusted or committed to him until that day. In other words, he has me safely in his hands. Can you say that with all certainty? Are you totally convinced of that? If that answer is yes, do we live our lives that way? Are you pursuing personal holiness? You are to be holy because God is holy. As individuals, but how about as a church? I'm going to end with this. I'm not going to sing this song. It kind of sums up everything I tried to say here this morning. It's a song called For God So Loved the World by a guy named Phil Wilkham. And just listen to the lyrics. What kind of love is this? Greater than all I've seen. Perfection bends to kiss. Unworthiness like me. Here I stand forgiven. You stepped into my dark, suffered the sinner's cross, rescued my helpless, hopeless heart. You paid the highest cost. Here I stand forgiven. Stronger than any grave, greater than every sin. Nothing can separate us. Your love will never end. Here I stand forgiven. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Amazing grace. My debt is paid. Oh, praise the risen run, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world. Divine grace. It's all about grace. Unmerited favor that I do not deserve, but is poured out, or I like the word, lavishly poured out on me by God. Where are you at this morning? Do you have that relationship with Christ? Have you experienced that grace and that love? If you have, I'm asking you, let's go deeper into it. Let's get to that point that we say we're convinced that I know he, he's able to guard which I'm trusted to him. And let's live that out as individuals and as a church. Remember what I've said in the past. We can face the road before us because we see God's faithfulness at work on the road behind us. If he's gotten through all that, and here we are standing, we can have complete confidence that he will take care of us in the future. Now, I don't know what the future will bring. I have no idea. But I know the one who holds the future in the palm of his hand.